reading comes from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark in the 15th chapter, beginning at the 33rd verse. Glory be to thee, O Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And when someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, through which you reveal your name your character. And so I would pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. Far less of me and far more of you. That your people gathered this morning would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated please? We're looking uh, this summer at some incredible Old Testament narratives, passages where God's name is revealed, or should I say names, 
For as Orvin opened up our series last week, he spoke of the character of God not being able to be contained in just one name. For each of the names of God reveal the glorious character of the living God. It's a series that is well-suited for the summer, for it all holds together but doesn't require you to have heard the previous ones, uh, what with camps and holidays and cottages. Now today we heard a text read for us from the life of Abram, later named Abraham, a story where God reveals himself as Jehovah Magen, meaning God is our shield, our protector. Now the danger of jumping in and out of narratives is that we miss the context, and as a result we go awry in our reflections. But the opening words of our text, after these things, invites us to bring that context in, to consider what led Abram up to this moment of encounter with the living God, after these things. What things? Well, God had come to Abram in the city of Ur, which is now modern-day Iraq, and told him to leave family land, family, and go to a place that he'd never seen with the promise of an heir, a future, the beginnings of a great nation. And he made the journey there with his nephew Lot, and they settled in the land of Canaan. But as their families grew, they, the land in which they'd settled was not enough to sustain them, and the family began to be fractured by infighting over resources. And so wisely, they discerned that they must move apart And Lot was given first choice of the land, and he chose to settle near the city of Sodom. It is then that regional politics take over the story, as the ruling tribes are taxing the city of Sodom, and Sodom decides, we're not going to pay your tax anymore. And so the ruling tribes crack down on this insubordination. They attack the city of Sodom. They collect all of its wealth, along with its people, including Lot and his family. Now, Abram hears this news, and he flies to his nephew's aid. He ambushes the conglomerate of tribes and is victorious. He rescues Lot and his family, and he captures all the spoils of war. To say the least, Abram has made enemies for himself. Not only the tribes that he's attacked but the king of Sodom, whose riches he now possesses. He's understandably anxious, fearful for his life, his family, his future. Reprisal will come, but how and when? He had the element of surprise the first time, but now he will be outnumbered at their mercy after these things. Fear begins to settle in. None of us is immune to fear, nor its cousins, worry, and anxiety. Somewhere in the midst of the pandemic, I stopped watching the news. I know I'm not alone in that. Ten minutes of international news and fear and worry will bubble right up to the surface. War, geopolitical tension, political uncertainty, economic turmoil, climate change... 
How can we deal with all that that when there's enough going on in our own lives? What with the relational angst and illness and death and family drama and financial strain? We have enough fear, fear, worry, uncertainty, anxiety without adding more. And fear, regardless of its cause, has a tendency to debilitate and paralyze us. We're not really sure how to meet the fear, and so we seem unable to make the decisions to wisely navigate our way through. Such fear has an active imagination. We can imagine all the possible scenarios of what could go wrong, and though evidence suggests that hardly anything of what we fear will come to pass, that doesn't keep us from worrying, giving undue headspace to all the possible outcomes of what has brought our fear to the surface. In our fear, others will come around us and tell us how unreasonable some of our fears are, but it's like whack-a-mole. Their reason might tamp down one of the causes of our fears, but another will very quickly take its place. Our fear is insatiable. And what would we want God to do for us in the midst of that fear? We would want God to show up in power, right? To bring change to that person, that situation, that circumstance that is causing our fear. Lord, if you were to address my fears, you would come in power. You would change this thing. And is that how God comes to Abram and his fear? Well, God gives Abram a vision, a word. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. God meets Abram in his fear by revealing himself. I am Jehovah again, your shield, your protector. In me, your future is secure. Now, I want us to notice something. The God who flung stars into space who set the planets in motion, the God who crafted the glorious beauty of our world, is concerned about the emotional well-being of his creatures. Think of it. Our God is concerned with yours and my emotional well-being and will take the initiative to meet us exactly where we are and to reveal himself. I am Jehovah again, your shield, your protector, in me your future is secure. Now, how does Abraham respond? Well, thanks God, I feel so much better now. I really needed to hear that. I was really spiraling here, but this really sets me on the proper trajectory. I so appreciate this. No. No, he pushes back with force and complete honesty. God, I don't see a pathway to that future you promised. Even if you were to deal with those who seek my life or my fear of that came to nothing, I still don't have an heir. There's no future without an heir. There's no great nation without an heir. And that pushback is recorded twice. A Semitic tool of rep repetition to express the agony, the depth of his ongoing concern. Now, the Bible is full of such pushback, full of such honest wrestling with God. 
And yet the modern person seems to meet their doubt, their spiritual struggles, their anger and confusion with God by either tamping those things down, pretending they're not there, or by walking away. I was formed in a Christian faith tradition that didn't create an environment where you could honestly wrestle with your doubt, your anger, your confusion with God. Part of that was theological. You were saved by faith, and so having a faith that was unalloyed by such things was linked to your sense of confidence in your salvation. It was bad theology. We're not saved by the subjective qualities of our faith, but rather by the object of our faith, Jesus, regardless of the subjective qualities of our faith. But both the environment and the theology made tamping those things down seem the only viable option. I suspect many of you here have had such an experience. But you can't tamp it down forever. All of that has got to find some expression. And there came a time where I wasn't able to hold it in anymore. Like a toxin, all of those negative emotions were causing internal damage. And it was the Psalms that invited me into a much healthier and biblical pattern. As the psalmist processed their emotional landscape before God, I began in prayer to process my own emotional landscape, my doubt, anger, confusion with God, not just with God, but with others, a desire for vengeance, for justice in the face of wrongdoing. And as I processed those in prayer, God began to speak into it. Not in a vision like with Abram, but in that same vein, as God began to reveal his character, reminding me of relevant biblical passages, reaffirming his love of me in the midst of the ugliness of my emotional landscape. It was and continues to be a very healing practice in my own life of faith. And if it is not a part of your own life of faith, I would encourage you into it as Abram does here. For in that wrestling, God meets us, meets Abram. The vision at this point becomes tender. I almost picture God leading Abram outside with his arm around his shoulder, with his other arm directing his attention to the night sky, painted with beauty and delight by the stars. Abram, Can you count them? So shall your offspring be. You can trust me. Abram's wrestling has been met with further revelation. That is what is on the other side of honest wrestling. And we're told that Abram believed God. He trusted God. He came to a place of faith. A faith, as Walter Brueggemann put it, that isn't peaceful, pious acceptance but his rather hard-fought, deeply argued conviction. God once more reiterates the promise. I led you out of Ur to give this land to your people. And then on the heels of that deep trust, the fear, doubt, and uncertainty once more bubble right up to the surface. But God, how can I know? How can I be sure? How can I trust you? And once more, God responds. 
responds to the honest wrestling with what seems a very, very strange command. Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon. It's strange to us, but Abram, without any further instruction, knows exactly what to do. They're about to make a covenant. You see, in our culture, a written culture, we make agreements by signing our signatures to legal documents, documents that outline the terms and the consequences of breaking the agreement. For example, if you were to hire someone, a renovator, a mover, a contractor to do some work for you, you would both sign an agreement where they would agree to do a certain amount of work by a certain time, and you would agree to pay them accordingly. And if either of you were to break that agreement, your signatures would allow the other to hold you to that agreement through legal means. This is the way that contracts are made in this, our written society. But in the oral culture of the Bible, such agreements and their consequences were acted out. In the time of Abram, when you wanted to establish a binding relationship, a covenant, you acted out the terms and consequences in this way. A place was chosen where the ground would slope into the middle, a ditch of sorts. And then these animals that God invites Abram to bring were brought to that place, and they were cut in half from nose to tail, so that you would have a right half and a left half. And each of those halves were arranged on either side of the ditch, such that the blood would run into the middle and begin to pile up. And then each party would stand at the opening of that groove, take off their sandals, and say, here are the terms of our agreement. And I give my word that if I break this agreement, may this happen to me. May I be cut in half, splayed out on the ground, and become food for vultures. And then to seal that agreement, they would each walk through that groove of blood. Now, when a covenant was being made between a superior and an inferior, between a king and a subject, let's say, the king would rarely, if ever, walk through the groove of blood. They would not lower themselves. You and I are not the same. I will not humble myself to your level. You need to make the promise to me, not me to you. Abram has set the scene for this covenant-making ceremony. And then in verse 12, we're told that a deep darkness descended over him. In other words, he was scared to death, consumed by crushing, paralyzing fear. Why? Because he's about to enter into covenant with the living God, and he's concerned that he won't be able to live up to his part of the agreement. For in the chapters before and after this scene, God outlines the terms of the agreement. I will be your God, you will be my people, and you will live blamelessly before me. You will reflect my goodness, my character. And Abram doubts that he can live in such a way into this agreement. He must have had such thoughts swimming around in his head. I might as well end it all here. I'm as good as splayed out on the ground. 
But something quite strange, extraordinary, shocking happens in this covenant-making ceremony. Abram never walks through the groove of blood. Only God does in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch, prefiguring the way that he will reveal himself to the nation of Israel. And by doing so, God is humbling himself and saying, if I break this, or you break this, if I fail at this covenant, or you fail at it, the result will be the same. It will be my blood that will be spilled. If you sin, if you're not perfect, if your descendants aren't blameless, if you break this covenant in any way, you may do this to me. May I be cut off and cut up. May my immortality suffer mortality. My infiniteness become finite. My life be brought to death. And here in this text, an arrow is notched. And the arrow is let fly. And it carves out this beautiful arc through the scriptures. For as B.B. Warfield put it, The Old Testament is like a fully furnished room that is poorly lit. You've got to open up a window of Jesus' revelation in order to shed light on what's going on because every time that God reveals himself in the Hebrew Scriptures, it points us ultimately to God's revelation in Jesus. And it does so in this way. The descendants of Abram, the Jewish people, expressed their trust in this covenant with a system of sacrificial offerings with the very same animals that we find here. This was a way for the descendants of Abram to claim their part in this covenant agreement. In essence, they would be saying with each and every sacrifice, God, we remember the covenant you'd made with our ancestor Abram, that in our failure, in our sin, we would not be cut off. It would be you who would take our place. And in memory of this, each and every day at 3 p.m., there would be a daily sacrifice of a lamb. Centuries later, Jesus, the Son of God, hangs on a cross. And a deep darkness descends upon the land. And at 3 p.m., the exact same time as that daily sacrifice, he cries out in a loud voice, it is finished. God's covenant promise has been fulfilled. Humanity has breached the covenant by sin, but it is Jesus, the Son of God, who is cut off, who gives up immortality for mortality, who gives up his life for death. This is the gospel, the heart of the Christian message, God's commitment to us that is born of free grace. I think this passage invites us to have this story as our lens for the cross. Far too often we give prominence to a view of the cross that arises from our sense of judicial justice. Crimes require penalties. Our sin deserves penalty. And at the cross, we see Jesus taking the penalty for our sin. And yes, there's truth to that. The wages of sin is death, and on the cross, Jesus takes that death that we might have life. But the trajectory from Genesis 15 to the cross 
invites us, first and foremost, to behold the covenant faithfulness of God. That he will meet our unfaithfulness with his faithfulness, meet our rejection with his love, meet our sin with his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. In his fear, Abram is brought to a revelation of who God is. I am Jehovah again, your shield, your protector. In me, your future is secure. So it begs the question, what do we do with our own fear? We all have them. In our fear, we're invited to behold Jesus, faithful to the end who at the cross meets our deepest fears, the fear of death, the fear of separation from God, the fear of the power of darkness, and displays them defeated by the power of his resurrection. And when we see Jesus victorious over our greatest fears, all of our other fears find their proper place. In his resurrection, he declares unequivocally that our future is secure in him. For his resurrection is the first fruits of a new creation, the promise that he's coming again to make everything new. I don't know the outcome of the situation that has you today wrapped up in fear. But I do know this. I know the outcome of the grand story of creation. All things will be made new. Jesus is coming again to do so, that every wrong will be undone. Peace, shalom, justice, full flourishing in every aspect of life is the sure and certain hope for our future. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. So sit back, relax, everything will be okay? No, no. Face your fears with this hope. Press into life with this hope. Push back against the darkness with this hope. Bespeak truth into lies with this hope. Work toward justice with this hope. Double down on love with this hope. For anything that is animated by this hope will find its place in that new creation. So in your fear, behold Jesus our Jehovah Megan, our shield, our protector, the one in whom our future is secure. Amen? Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.